know, on the wild card that ups the ante and redefines the game. So, you know, I recognize that, yeah, it might cost you money, you might up the ante, but, you know, I'll be the guy that's going to disrupt the industry, you know, doing that. And I'm not scared to back down from that challenge. It's not a straight line. I'm Jordan Harding and welcome to the podcast. We're about to learn how people like you and I overcome career setbacks, pivot, reinvent themselves and find work that aligns with their top strengths. Let's dig in together as we learn how these incredible people become the best version of themselves. All right, so I've got Steve Fry on the podcast. This is episode 12. Steve Fry's a trailblazer. After finishing his business degree at Brock University, he joined St. Joseph's Healthcare as a materials management analyst. After two years, he moved on to Shared Services West, and he progressed throughout that organization and eventually became a VP of operations where he was the champion for strategic sourcing and supply chain transformation across 12 healthcare organizations with responsibilities for over 100 staff and 600 million in yearly contracts. Steve was then one of 25 people out of 17,000 that won a lottery for a license to open a cannabis retail store. He's now president and co-founder of Sessions Cannabis. Also throw in a few kids a wife, some real estate investments, and an overall good guy who I know and had the pleasure of commuting with to our co-op placements in university. Steve, welcome to It's Not a Straight Line. Wow, what a warm intro. There you go. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Jordan. Pumped to be here. Your, your intro has gotten longer over the years, Steve. <laughs> let's, let, let, let's keep the momentum going, man. I need to add a couple more feathers to my hat here. Right. So, Steve... I read a little bit about about you growing up and you in high school, and, and I didn't realize that you coming into Brock, it, it wasn't actually that much of a straight line for you. What was it like growing up? Yeah, well, I think anybody that knows me well knows I had a pretty tumultuous upbringing. You know, I, I didn't really have a plan going to university. I'm one of uh, seven kids, a uh, mixed family. I grew up with three older brothers, and uh, you know, I came up with a really poor family. My my, my father died when I was uh, eight years old. I didn't really know him that well. Uh, he was in and out of jail for a good chunk of my life. And I grew up in poverty. So going to university was, was quite the journey for me. And I look back on it now and, I, and I'm so grateful for some of the friends I had because it's really the only reason why I chose to go to university. Funny stat, in my family, I'm one of, uh, of the brothers of my family. I'm the only person that's actually graduated uh, high school actually my entire immediate family and then the only person's graduating university in my entire uh entire extended family so you know me going to school was a really big deal for the family back then and you know brock was just a really great choice for me at the time i'm super happy that i made that decision to uh to go to university so did you always have it in your mind that you were going to go to university and college because you didn't come from a family that that had done that no, not at all. Like I, I actually, I remember. It's funny. I went back to my uh, to my childhood memories not too long ago. My entire childhood's in a little bag in my basement. It's all I have left. And I, I looked at a yearbook or a little thing from like grade eight, and I, I wanted to be a, a professional snowboarder back then. That was my, that was my, that was my gym. So I didn't really have a plan to be honest with you. And I think you know, growing up in that circumstance, you kind of just live it day by day, and you know, you're a bit of an underdog, right? You know, being in poverty and you know, seeing other people prosper. So. I think, again, look back to some of my friends, they were going to school and thought, hey, why not? And 
funny enough, in, in grade 11, I was in all the applied courses back then in, in high school. So I wasn't actually eligible to go, go to university. And I never had good grades, like maybe 50s and 60s back in high school, up to grade 11. And I went and met with my, my guidance counselor and, and he gave me a shot. I don't know how he did it. I, I still don't know to this day. I give him kudos. He allowed me to apply to all the courses to have prerequisites for university that I didn't actually have the prerequisites to go to. And I decided to apply myself in grade 12, and I ended up getting really good grades and getting a scholarship to go to Brock. So I thought, hey, what the hell? This is, this is amazing. So uh, that's how it all kind of came to fruition, just kind of t- turning the page at some point along the journey and and uh, and being fortunate enough to be accepted to university. And so, so you get to Brock, you're taking business, and, and that's, of course, where we met. What did you think was the potential for Steve Fry at that time? Where did your ambitions lie in your first, second year? Well, I'll be honest with you. I went to university my first year. I didn't know really anything or know anybody at Brock. Uh, I went to Brock because they were the, the university offering me the most amount of scholarship money, which obviously cash was king back then, not coming from a lot of money. I was 140 pounds. I was a skinny, scrawny dude. And I just kind of was rolling with the punches. I mean, I went there. I, I, I got accepted to residence. Uh, and I probably spent a little bit too much time partying, to be honest with you. Uh, I still kept my grades up, which, which I'm quite grateful for, but I didn't know a lot going into university. I was just a kind of a young, dumb kid, to be honest with you, and just trying to find my way. I think what really set me apart is that I'm, I'm an extremely competitive person. So I always wanted to do, you know, good, good in school and get good grades and show people how great it was. So that's kind of, that's kind of my journey into to university. I didn't have a lot of plans in sight. It was really unplanned, to be honest. And, and just for the fun people that will listen to this from Brock, where where do you were you in residence? Were you at Lowenberg, if I remember correctly? I was at the yeah the the, the concrete jungle, the office the building. <laughs> yeah, I was in Lowenberg. It was it was. I had a single room, so I was, I was lucky. But yeah, I had I had a great time. I made a lot of uh, a lot of friends. I'm still with uh, still today from that from that residence, and, and people like yourself back from from college days too, right? Or university days. So yeah, it was amazing going going to Brock, and uh, I. I I'm still very nostalgic about my time at Brock and all the friends and people I made along the way, right? Certainly shaped in terms of who I am today, for sure. So we both did the co-op program. You were at John Deere for a while. I remember you doing a stint at GM. Where did you want to go once you graduated? What kind of led you into the healthcare field? Yeah, well, if we, if we, if we backtrack to co-op, I just wanted a damn job to be honest with you. And I remember the co-op office making fun of me or poking a bit jab at me. My job was to find a job. I was literally applying to 50 or 60 jobs a day. And I remember them calling me out to saying, Steve, like you are the by far the most most amount of applications coming in from you. Like you're just on fire. So uh, not having a big business connection from my family. I didn't know anybody. I didn't know any business at all. That was really my job. And was fortunate to get a couple, uh, couple of gigs. But, you know, Co-op helped shape me as a as a professional. I'm so grateful to have that opportunity because I actually got some real life work experience. And again, I was a pretty big dummy going to these things. I didn't have any exposure, any mentors, any looking into that. So no, it was a, it was a great uh, a great a great experience. And then in terms of uh, getting into healthcare, similarly, I, I you know 2008 2009, as you may recall, was a bit of a recession period in, in the world economy. So I apply, I, I graduate with honors from from university. All the co-op positions I had, those employers weren't weren't hiring anymore. I same thing, just rinse and repeat, back to 50, 60 jobs a day. And I remember, I remember after I graduated, I was applying for executive assistant jobs, any job I could get my hands on that. Nobody was going to hire me. My first lucky break, I was dating a girl at the time, and her mom was high up in healthcare, and I ended up getting a, what was called a, just a just a temporary kind of contract role, overseeing the print management project, trying to consolidate printers at the hospital. And that's how I got my foot in the door in healthcare. 
And after maybe two or three months in that role, just as a contractor, I applied to a role called contract analyst. And I thought, okay, it's an analyst role. It's a contract role. I'm good at Excel. I've got some really good analytical skills. I'll apply for it. Long behold, that job was a procurement role. And I got that job. I got that job. And and that's how my world in healthcare and procurement and supply chain came to fruition. Totally by chance. If you would ask me in university if I mean healthcare, not a hope in hell would have I been able to answer that question. So totally honest with you, it was it's quite the journey. Let me go back to something because I did read you applied to 50 or 60 jobs per day. I don't know how many days you did that in a row, but so that is that is truthful. Yes. And first of all, did you have a system in place to apply to that many jobs a day? Were you just rinsing and repeating the resumes and cover letters? It's funny. I, I More or less, I had a lot of templates. Uh, I, I did obviously a lot of online forms. I kind of template as much as I can, but I actually did spend the time to customize each cover letter and resume appropriately and kind of move things around and rejig the bullets, whatever you want to call it. And I had a lot of cover letter examples because you had to remember to pick up on some of those keys. It got some of those key skills that employers are looking for. So, you know, if they were looking for analytical, I had my little insert, my little paragraph, and it's just a cut and paste job, you know, 50, 60 times a day. And I did this for months, George. Like I did this for quite a bit of time. And I couldn't find a job for the hell of it. And I had good grades, good experience, but I didn't have any connections. I'm just this guy that had a degree at that time. I knew nothing else, right? So I, I suppose, what do you have to say for people going through COVID right now and tough times with you obviously had that persistence, you had that drive. What was the strategies or internal thinking that kept you going? Yeah, well, I think I think largely necessity to some extent. You look at the good old Maslow hierarchy of needs, like there's certain things you got to do and, and making money is one of those. And Again, that's one of the reasons I was applying for any which job I can that I, I could get that I thought would be at least a decent fit for my skills, of course. I wasn't applying for just anything. But I'd say I think, you know, from advice to people, you know, have the grit, have the perseverance. You know, times do get better. Things do change in this in this world quite often. Right. And the good old saying comes to mind to me, which is uh, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. Right. So, you know, do your do your thing, put in the work, you know, keep keep your ear to the grindstone and you keep your head up high and, and things will change and there will be lucky breaks along the way. And, that, and that's what's happened in my case, right? And I mean, from a analyst job in healthcare through a girl I dating to a VP in, in, in almost 10 years, just about 10 or 11 years was quite the journey, right? And I wouldn't have had that just for a lucky break, right? Yeah, I like that thinking and, and prep, preparation and work does meet that, that luck. I, I believe in that as well. You know, ever since, and we'll get into your story about winning the license, you've been interviewed a few times now, but something you may not have been asked is, was there a particular situation in your co-op roles where you established some grit or you learned something that you still use to this day? I remember you telling me some very interesting stories, whether it was GM in Woodstock or some other places you had worked at. Yeah. Well, my co-op experiences were, were quite interesting. My first co-op actually was, was a bit of a gong show. I worked for the, the regional municipality of Niagara. And I was like, a, I was the recycling guru. I was out there speaking to children about how great recycling was. So a bit of a weird job, but I thought I'd roll with it, a good experience. And I remember one day my my manager called me in the office and made an accusation that I was drinking on the job and I was bringing beer out of the company, the, the, the regional Niagara van, which was totally false. And that started off a really bad footing in my kind of first work experience. But from a job perspective, I had a lot of liberty and a lot of experience in some of my co-op jobs. And you know, though I think those some of those experiences helped shape some of the, the business fundamentals that I, I've learned along the way. And you know, I just realized, you know, going to some of these roles that you can actually make a big impact. 
you know, even if you don't have a lot of knowledge, if you kind of focus on a task at hand and, you know, you really try to improve what you're working on through iteration, you can make a big dent. And, and I think some of those skills and experience I learned places like John Deere, I worked at a, a customer identification pro- process there where, you know, there's all these inbound credit applications coming in. And I had to figure out a way to streamline how to identify customers, make sure there was no fraud. And my time at GM as a frontline uh, supervisor in a, in, a, in a union environment was a total gong show as well in terms of experiences leading people as the young guy, right? I remember a story, um, uh, one, of the, one of the guys on the floor used to call me, he used to call me stupid visor, right? As that young guy as a supervisor. And, and it was hard being that young leader trying to demand respect and, and drive rapport. But, you know, I got my, I got my, my revenge on that fellow and, and I won people over. And, you know, I learned a lot of those experiences in terms of just having thick skin and, you know, just keeping your head up high and, and, and really focusing on the task at hand, right? Yeah, I also remember an experience. I, I think something happened with glass breaking or you were trying to help and then the union got involved. It, I think you learned a lot of lessons about unions in that role. Well, that that's the guy that kept calling me supervisor and mocking me, making fun of me in my, my regular team huddles I had every morning for my, my group. And I looked back at his file and I, I realized he was cross-trained in, in housekeeping like 15, 20 years ago. All these guys are lifers in, in the industry. And because the union has certain rules, because he was cross-trained, technically, uh, I could have him do housekeeping duties if it was assigned to him. So my car had a broken window at the time. And, and I, in front of the entire group, I said, okay, today's task, you're going to follow me and you're going to bring a broom and a dustpan. You're going to come help me sweep up my, my glass up for my, my vehicle. Right? And I had to shepherd you out of the process because I had the key to get out of the, out of the building. And he never, ever made fun of me again because I commanded respect among all the other workers, right? So maybe not anything worth sharing and learning. It's not something you should probably do. But yeah, I think commanding respect and, and demonstrating that you, you know you have confidence in yourself went a long way, right? Well, and I think your ability to be a young person trying to command that respect has probably helped you as you've grown throughout your career. You were at uh, St. Joseph's and you got into healthcare because of the serendipity of, of your girlfriend's mom and, and a lot of hard work and grit and grind. How did you end up at Shared Services West? And can you speak about how you kind of progressed through that organization in a quick fashion? I mean, it was over, I think, eight years, but you moved your way up. And again, you were probably considered the young guy in. One thing I would say is ageism has been one common theme in my entire career, right? I'm always really sensitive around age. I get asked it a lot. And, you know, I think there, that that's a true characteristic in the workplace is people think you're young, so you're, you're dumb. And in my case, it, it's exact opposite coming from where I've grown up and, and kind of earned my stripes along the way. But it's funny, another kind of weird twist and turn on my career, my time at St. Joe's Health System, I had a really great experience there doing a lot of good, you know, making a lot of good momentum in my career. But I was ready for the next step after a couple of years in my mind. And I remember speaking with my my manager at the time saying, I really want to move up. I've kind of earned my stripes and, you know, I think I'm ready. And, and I, I got a firm no, this isn't going to happen. And I thought, you know what, there's something wrong here. I've done all the right things. I've moved all the markets, exceeded all expectations. So I applied for a, I applied for a job, actually a job that was already closed at Shared Services West. The posting was already down. I remember calling HR and I said, hey, can I still apply? And the, and the, and the, the HR leader at the time, his name was Paul, he said, you know, why, why don't you submit the application? So sure enough, I submitted the application. He let me have an interview and I got the job. The same job that I was trying to get at that current company I was at, in terms of the next progression, I got at Shared Services West. So they gave me a shot. And boy, was it ever, whatever good call because I went into that, that role and I just grew from there. And in a matter of, you know, seven, eight years, I, I tripled my salary. So, you know, I went a long way and grew many, many uh, different uh, tiers in the organization. Did you cold call that, that Paul or did you know him? 
No, cold call, 100%. Knew, knew nothing. I think that's one thing my wife always tells me that she hopes our kids get is my ability to network and connect the dots, right? It, it's just calling and trying to throw yourself out to the world and, and connecting the dots along the way it goes a long way. And this happened to be another serendipitous moment where I was able to you know, do that, get the dots, and, and here we are. So there's a few things that shared services, West. I remember you going through and you got your MBA from McMaster with DeGroote, and that was impressive. The fact that you managed 100 people full on your team is so impressive at your age and you know where we came from. How did you develop those management skills and how did you show people that you had the ability to lead that many people at, at your age? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I'd say... You know, one thing from to share knowledge and, and learnings for people listening is that when I entered that company, there's a few things I did right that I, I, I think are really impactful. One, I was the first guy to raise my hand for any kind of project. You know, two, I, I got involved in things like the social committee. And three, I buddied myself up with some of the smartest people in that organization, some of the highest performing people. And that was my early kind of move into that into that industry. And it turned out really well for me because, you know, I started to, to finesse my skills and, and really gain a lot of knowledge. And you know, just over time throughout doing those things, I was able to kind of move the markers. But the one thing that really set me apart at Treasures West was I started to have a bit of an entrepreneurial mindset where I thought to myself, listen, I've got some skills here and I've got some opportunities I see. You know, why don't I start developing some business cases to, you know, bring in additional revenue and grow our services? And, you know, I took I took some gambles and some risks along the way and I, I ended up landing a couple multi-million dollar contracts. And it was because of that, that things just skyrocketed for me, because once the organization saw that potential, it was a no brainer for me to grow along the way. So, and I would also say I, I was really fortunate for a company like Chairs West because I had the right people around the table, I had people that believed in me. I had the right leaders around me. And it's not like I was just given to me. I, I, a funny story, one of my the manager at the time, who's still a mentor and a friend of mine, I remember approaching him. He was my boss at the time. I said, I really want to move up in the company. He's actually the, my boss's boss. He told me I really want to become a leader. And he said, you know what, Steve? Wayne Gretzky was, was an amazing hockey player, but, but a really bad coach. And that's the analogy that he gave to me at the time. So that only fueled me in terms of wanting to demonstrate that I could go above and beyond. I could prove myself. And, you know, things like breaks like that along the way that really humble you, you know, made me focus more on myself and focus on my skills and get greater education and run a marathon and do crazy things. So it's when people challenge you and you recognize yourself, okay, maybe there are things you need to find too that have gone a long way. So, And so was he taking a, a bit of a, not a slight, but in feedback in terms of, hey, Steve, you're a great individual contributor, but you've got to get your leadership and coaching up to that next level? Yeah, I think to some extent. And, and it, it's also maybe one of those things. I think a lot of young people and, and organizations get this often, which is, you know, they always want to move at a rapid pace. And, and I'm one of those guys as well. And it's hard for companies to keep up with, you know, people like myself or other people that are akin to that. So I think it was just maybe trying to temper expectations a bit. But again, that that feel is what led me to do more entrepreneurial opportunities and, and really find other opportunities to grow within the business. And, you know, my way was if there's no natural path for me to get to where I want to be from a, from a leader and, and a higher up leader perspective, then I'll carve out that path. I'll find that way. And that's exactly what I did. Right. And that and that that drive and that grit and that that kind of thinking of the box really paved the way for me to become executive in that company in relatively short order. And so you're speaking about being entrepreneurial. You've always been a guy, I think, that a lot of people thought would become an entrepreneur and you've written about it. How were you trying to come up with an idea 
of the type of business you could build. I, I know that on the side, you were throwing around a few different ideas. Real estate was one of them. I wish I had a really clean answer. I don't. I think the way I, I run my life, certainly last you know, 10, 15 years has been, I always want to make this year better than the last and set bigger and better goals and really expand my horizons and, and expand my fears, really grow that box of fears out there. Um, so, you know, I, I've always had this idea of what am I going to do next? What's next for Steve? What can I do on the side? What my side hustle will be? So, you know, I, I dabbled in real estate, you know, bought a couple of residential uh, rentals, did quite well at that, still have a lot of those, those properties. I, at one point, I started a photography business with a, with a drone uh, early days in that, you know, and then at the time... When was that, Steve? How early did you start? This that? this was going like early day drones. Like I, okay. I, I bought a drone like when it was first available, like the first iteration <laughs> of it. And it was a kind of a cool opportunity then. And then I was dabbling about getting my real estate license. And that's about the same time the cannabis thing happened. It was, okay, what am I going to do next on from my side hustle perspective? And and side hustle, I use work loosely because I was working long hours at SSW at Chester's West. I, I, was, I was hustling there. So side hustle was like my my 10 till midnight kind of time, right? So that's what I mean by side hustle. Yeah, it's a different side hustle than most people that work till 5.30 or 6 and then can do it after that. So I'm a fan of Tony Robbins. He says life changes in a moment. And can you speak about how did you hear about the cannabis lottery? What were the first thoughts before you entered it? Just tell me the story of, of how you won being one of 25 people out of 17,000 or some odd people across Ontario. Yeah, well, it's a great, it's a great quote. I'm glad, I'm glad you bring that quote up because it is really impactful. And I truly am a believer that life can change in a moment. And I've had many moments of that along my, along my life and along my career. You know, from a cannabis perspective, similar to what I was talking about before, I was wondering what's next for Steve. What's next for me? What, what can I do to you know make this year better than next and grow myself as as a, as a person, both professionally and personally? And I heard I heard something on the radio uh, one way driving home from work about this new cannabis thing going on. And, and I had, I have not been following this industry at all. Uh, I'll be perfectly honest with people in that respect. Uh, I just thought, what the hell? So I started. I, I read maybe eight ten hours about this process. I started getting really into it. So okay, this makes sense. You know, what am I missing? It seems like it's too easy in order to apply. So. Uh, sitting around uh, the dining room table, my my in-laws were over and uh, we were having dinner and you know and I had to put I had to file the application by I don't know I can't remember it was like eight o'clock or something it was like seven fifty five you know I did my homework get in there and, and I put my name my email address in there and paid my seventy five dollar admission fee to get participate in this process and I left it at that that that's how the kind of cannabis thing uh, came to fruition so my my thought process at the time was again just largely what's next for me and you know this might be kind of a cool opportunity. And I remember calling my best man, one of my one of my close friends, uh, Davey, the next day, saying, "You know, I've got a really good feeling. This cannabis thing. I think you're going to win this damn thing. You know, I think I'm going to. I don't know why. I don't know why. I, I just I had this level of confidence. I did not know that 17,000 people applied. No clue. I I didn't know what the hell was applying. Uh, I had no previous industry experience in this at all. So, and then long behold, here I am. Right. So you you win, and you found out. I think over a Facebook message by a colleague you you knew. And now you have six weeks, I think, to put all the pieces and dots together. You're coming from a big role at a health organization where you're procuring major equipment deals across 12 healthcare organizations. This is definitely different. What are those conversations with your wife, your partner, and yourself about like, okay, I'm going to go in this next different direction? Yeah, it's weird. Like 
when it, when it happened, like I said, like you said, I, a friend of mine, message, a high school friend of mine who happened to be in the cannabis industry messaged me on, on Facebook message, like, hey, is that the Stephen Fry I think it is? And, and I look at my email and, and lo and behold, I have this email from the government saying, hey, you've been selected. I thought, oh, shit. What now, right? Because I didn't really think about it. I didn't even. I wasn't even following the time it was going to be drawn. I didn't even know the time. And as you alluded to, there was a lot of restrictions in terms of how fast things had to be done. So I think the government's intent going into this was, if you applied, they just assumed you'd be ready to open a store within, in short order. So there's significant penalties uh, if you weren't able to open in short order. And there's a lots of the industry wasn't quite ready for cannabis at the time, largely due to things like banking and other things. But when I when I paused and, and reflected on on that moment. I, I did what I normally do. I just, I just kind of sat, looked at the situation, you know, had some analytical skills that broke it down, and just began, just started, right, and just let it snowball and grow from there. So just kind of back to the to the grindstone and 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 really start to roll up your sleeves and, and figure this puzzle out. And that's exactly what I did. Network with people and and just started to create a bit of a project plan, and then it just went from there. So again, no no formal plan in place. Uh, just largely kind of roll the punches and, and just, you know, take those skills I've learned along my career and just apply them, right? So what were some of the the things you had to meet? The biggest challenge I had, which I, I still find perplexing to this day, was uh, one of the requirements was to get a uh, a letter of credit from a bank to say that you had $50,000 that the government was going to hold and, and trust and, and use to draw any penalties against you or, or any future penalties that they had. Unfortunately, what nobody realized in the government level, for whatever reason, the banking system in Canada just wasn't wasn't where it needed to be. So cannabis was freshly legal two months before I, I was awarded this opportunity, and no Canadian bank was willing to play in cannabis because it's still federally legal in the U.S. and they have U.S. counterparts. And you know, so, so whether it be CIBC or BMO or any of the big Canadian banks, nobody wanted to touch cannabis with a ten foot pole. So the first challenge I had was figuring out how the hell we get this letter of credit. I remember contacting. I remember contacting the the Alcohol Gaming Commission, which is the the governing body for this, and I said, "Guys, like I can't get a letter of credit." And then I started connecting with other people that won the won the opportunity as well. The other twenty four people, whoever would answer my phone calls at the time, and they're all having the same problem. So you know, we're trying to rally against the government. Say this is ridiculous. None of us can do this. And you know, uh, people were were in tears saying, "This is ridiculous. I'm going to lose this kind of golden opportunity because I can't get a can't get a damn bank to support us." That was that was the first kind of major roadblock and it sounds simple at the time but I, I was literally walking up and down street bay street the only reason why i was able to get one is i i, I reached out to the ceo of a bank called alterna because i heard them rumblings that they're friendly with it, and he responded and through that connection is what got me into this bank and then i told all the other people that were involved in this lottery post with me hey go to alterna and then it just started to happen that way so that's that's challenge one Challenge two is is the government didn't give a lot of clarity in terms of where people were going. So you've got this golden opportunity to, to open up in the city and be the first person to ever open a cannabis store, but you don't know where any of the people in your region are going to open. So trying to connect the dots in terms of okay, I don't want to I don't want to be in it wanna I want to be six of six people in a city. I want to be the first guy in the city. So that was a whole game of monopoly and a whole chess game to figure out how that was going to play out, and then just coordinating the building and hiring employees, placing orders. All that went in a significantly short, like we're talking several weeks with significant penalties, all that happening all, all at one time. Well, trying to balance the borderline harassment I was getting from vendors in the industry wanting to partner with me, right? So it was, it was quite, it was quite the, the adventure. It just, it was 20 plus hour days every day. Yeah. And I also heard you had huge issues too with landlords 
and so many different things. You know, one of the things I've always admired about you, Steve, is you never have backed down from a negotiation or a conflict and you always seem to resolve it in a very mutually beneficial way. How did you develop those negotiation skills and that persistence to keep going on to the next and the next and the next? Well, definitely lots of hiccups from, from a canvas front. And still, to, as of today, with respect to landlords, it's still a, a significant amount of stigma. I, I still encounter major, major roadblocks and challenges to this day. But from a negotiation perspective, you know, I, I look back at, again, my upbringing and being the youngest of many children in a pretty tough environment, I think just gives you that natural kind of instinct to have a fight, have a fight within you, right? And to have some confidence within you to kind of fight with what you need. So I think it's just a natural knack for me, to be honest with you. And, and I think what's helped really cement that is along my life and along my career, I've been told numerous times, I remember when I bought my first house, the real estate agent at the time said, man, you are good. Like you're going to be amazing in this industry. Like you're such a good negotiator. You've done all your homework. And then I've just been able to apply all those skills along the way. I, you know, a funny story about negotiation, I have a couple I was thinking about. When I was getting when I was getting married, you know, I was negotiating the crap out of, of the wedding, right? So I, I remember a story I used to tell people in my old job about negotiating with the minister, right, or negotiating <laughs> with the church, right? Like, left no stone unturned. Like, you got to really fight for every dollar. And you know, when I bought my first vehicle, you know, I literally closed the car dealership down. We're still negotiating. It was like eleven thirty night. I was not leaving until that car was mine, and we had the right deal on the table, right? So. You know, I way I look at negotiations is if you might have to put in the time, but boy, does that pay dividends. Like, you know, my first car, I say, call it 10 grand. If I had to put in 10 hours of work, I was paying a thousand bucks an hour. That's pretty damn good. Right. So I think some people just become, you know, lazy or, or don't want to put the effort, the grid in to be able to achieve some good results in negotiation. I'd say the second thing, you know, in terms of what's helped me is I quickly learned along my life and along my career that, you know, knowledge is, is, is power. And doing your homework and prepping for negotiation goes a long ways. And, and I often use this example when I've done some negotiation seminars for some of my old staff. You know, the girl's saying that you miss 100 percent of the shots that you don't take, right? So you can't be afraid to ask. You gotta come in brazen. You, you gotta have to set the tone. It's just a big chess match, right? So you know, that's that's how you know I've been able to build my confidence and, and build what I call a high income skill because negotiation is definitely a high income skill. So if you want to do anything well at life, negotiation is one of those things you better perfect, you better perfect now and get really good at along your career. Is speaking about just opening a negotiation and not being afraid to ask, just, just remind everyone, how, how did you reach out to that Alterna bank CEO and what was your ask? Well, it, it was just, I'm hearing it, it's simply, simply just pinging an email. Like it wasn't, it wasn't even a negotiation of time on that, on that front. It was just more, again, connecting the dots and, and using your networking skills to just throw it out there in the world, see what happens, right? So less of a negotiation, but more of a, just another example of trying to connect the dots and just, you know, not being afraid to, to send somebody an email or a cold call. So I mean, I, I find that most people often do want to share knowledge and do want to help you if you position the message in the right kind of tone, the right kind of way, not just some kind of cold college kind of way, right? You know, Steve, you're working in the store, you're sleeping in the store, I've read. And, you know, you just said it 20 hours per day, you're going to your job as a VP, you get fined, I think it was 12,500, then you get fined again, because the government doesn't show up. You said something pretty smart, I read it was like, you know what, it's what I signed up for, it's out of my control you know, not to ping off the podcast name, but this isn't going in a straight line. And there's so many challenges coming up. 
what's your internal monologue to keep yourself going? Like, do you have your down days or are you a very positive guy for the most part? Oh boy. No, I definitely have my down days. I, I, I wish I could profess to be one of those guys that's super pause all the time. What I would say is I've tried to train my brain along my career and all my life. And I always use the example of kind of opening a door handle. It's that kind of, you just do it. It's the automatic response. And, and I'm a true believer that, you know, if you keep your head up high and you think a certain way and you, and you throw yourself out through the world, that you kind of rewire those neural pathways and it just becomes more intrinsic and, and, and just happens that way. So, you know, I, I've always been that way in terms of not letting a challenge kind of defeat me. You know, I let the competitive edge of me and let that kind of sheer grit and passion come out. And that's what carries me. So I'd say it's largely just those intrinsic skills that you develop along your life that, you know, give you the confidence, give you the grit that you've done time and time again, that you don't, you don't fret these kind of challenges. These are, these are, this was a significant challenge. Don't get me wrong, whether it be opening or running the store, but you just kind of keep your head up high and, and you really just focus on, on the mission at hand, right? And try to block out some of the noise and some of the confusion that's going on. So when you finally did get open, it was it was it's Canada Cabana, it's in Hamilton, I think it's on Barton. I mean, you partnered up with with a company called High Tide. There were huge investments, and I think you said on on BNN, I saw it was like you know well into over a million dollars, and that wasn't even including inventory. Someone looking at at a friend like this who went to business school with you, like how the heck were you dealing with that stress and pressure and how did you deal with this with your – you were having a kid at the time. I think you had a kid already at the time, right? Yeah, I, I already had I already had a kid who was, was really young at the time too. So, you know, balancing life and, and work, everything else was, was quite, quite tricky. You know, I think, it, again, it just goes back to keeping your head up and, and doing what you need to do. And it's that kind of short-term pain for long-term game analogy, right? Like you kind of do what you need to do now so you can kind of live the life you want to live later, right? So – the pressure was immense, though. I mean, this was a lot of money at the table. I was fortunate to be able to partner up, and even finding a partner was a tire shit show, for lack of better words, going through this industry to come up with the financial means. One of the reasons I need to partner with somebody is because the banking systems weren't there to lend any money, right? And while I had a good amount of assets in real estate, I just couldn't liquidate things fast enough to be able to come up with the money in the short order of time the government gave me to be opening one of these stores up. So. You know, I relied on some of those negotiation skills to craft some good contracts and go through that process. But yeah, we're talking several million dollars and, and, and it's not easy juggling that kind of money. And again, I'm quite fortunate coming from managing a lot of financial responsibilities and a lot of responsibilities for my, my, my role as executive in the healthcare system. I was able to, to noodle my way through that, but it was not easy and it, it was high stakes and high pressure. And, you know, that through that experience, I actually developed one of my, my business um one of my business goals as a person, and, and it's to say, you know, I'm the wild card that ups the ante and redefines the game. So, you know, I recognize that, yeah, it might cost you the money, it might up the ante, but, you know, I'll be the guy that's going to disrupt the industry, you know, doing that. And I'm not scared to back down from that challenge. Yeah, I really like that philosophy and quote. You've even got it on your LinkedIn. That, that's perfect. Speaking about something else you kind of envisioned, I think you took a, a note out of Jim Carrey's playbook and you also had a check for $10 million that you put up with the date 2030. How did that kind of come about? Yeah, I found that story of Jim Carrey so expiring. You know, him sitting on top of Hollywood Hills and, and writing himself a check that he's going to, I think his check was made for $5 million at the time. But, you know, it goes back to what I was saying earlier on that kind of natural law and, and rewiring and reprogramming your brain to think a certain way and throw yourself out there and present yourself a certain way and act a certain way. and slowly but surely you start to become that way and 
you know, I, I found that hold true so many times in my career and in my life in terms of just thinking highly of myself, setting big goals, you know, and it's a good old saying comes to mind, like, you know, you shoot for the moon, you might land upon the stars, but you know, as long as you're progressing in that, in that forward motion, it goes a long way. And that I drew a lot of inspiration from Jane Curry and, and, uh, I'm certainly well on my way in terms of cashing my $10 million check and, you know, a short nine years from now. And hopefully, honestly, I think I'll achieve that a lot sooner. You know, going back to my, you mentioned Brock earlier, and I was thinking about a story. When I was at Brock, I remember in one of my classrooms, uh, I remember thinking to myself, and I, I have a vivid memory of this, telling myself that if I could make $50 an hour, which I equated to about $100,000 a year in income, like that was going to be amazing. That was going to be my goal. And boy, like you start to think that way. And I significantly undershot that time. But again, it just, Thinking towards a goal, you know, is half the battle and then putting in that aptitude and attitude to get there, right? And so you're saying like really envisioning that larger amount of money or that larger goal you, has really, you think, pushed yourself forward. It, it 100% has. It, it, if, if you think about it, a guy like me growing up on more or less welfare, you know, really tough, you have to kind of remove yourself from some of those handicaps and, and just think big and I think some of the, the most transformational leaders and some of the most disruptive people in, in business are people like myself that can think in a way that can, that can has the confidence that believe it will come to fruition. So thinking big, I would encourage everybody to really, you know, vision and, and think about the life that you want to live and, and, and do that kind of, uh, what do you call it? Like the whiteboard or the picture analogy, what that, what that looks like. It's really impactful. It really is. Throughout all of this, and even though you're thinking big, you are, you are that person that, that came from those tougher situations You've got all this money invested in the business. I even read you've received death threats. Did you ever think, what if this all blows up in my face? Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I would. And I don't mean that literally, Steve. I'm just talking about like, what if the business blows up in my face? But you did have those death threats. Yeah, no, I've actually had multiple death threats, and I've still had I've had threats as recently as a couple of weeks ago in my current business session. So it's it's a weird industry that i'm in i mean i'm in the i'm in the legal vice industry right so it's and it's so new and there's a lot of legacy industry that that people don't love that I, i'm i'm taking taking charge in in the legal way right but yeah i i'd say I'll, i'm human right i often have doubts as well i'm certainly not i'm not inhuman i i have the same doubts a lot of people have but again it's about trying to rewire yourself to, to get beyond that and not let those doubts hold you back I think that's a key. And everybody has doubts. And it doesn't matter what anybody tells me, everybody's got doubts. It just rides into the occasion and having that, you know, passion and having that grit and having that capability to to achieve what you want to achieve and just kind of keeping your eye laser focused on that vision and that goal is what you get beyond those things. But yeah, there's no doubt. In a place like cannabis as an example, it's such a new industry and there's so many twists and turns along the way that you know, there, there, it could, it could blow up still, to be honest with you. But you kind of have to keep to your strategy and, and keep thinking in a certain way, and, and course correcting along the way, right? So after you had the source, Stephen, in Hamilton, you created, you co-founded, and now that you're the president of Sessions Cannabis, and I think you have a goal, or you might already have twenty franchise locations open on Ontario. But what are you doing now? And what is Sessions? I know it's trying to disrupt the industry. I know that you went after many people who won the lottery to help them stay away from the things you ran into. Yeah, the sharks. Yeah, I, I would say, you know, it's funny enough, getting into cannabis and partnering initially was actually, a, it's almost a big setback to some extent because, you know, I made a lot of mistakes when I when I opened it at um, with Kenny Cabana in Hamilton. And, you know, one of the things I did is I kind of sold my soul a bit. I, I entered into agreements that, you know, we're certainly financially uh, incentivized, but 
So I end up selling the business back to them as kind of a forced a forced sale at the time. So I have a lot of regrets on that. But you know, through that experience, I was able to think about you know what can I do differently and, and how can I develop a better mousetrap. And that that's how Sessions was born. You know, after putting in all this crazy hours and you know having a partner that I just didn't I wasn't I wasn't in love with at the time. You know, I, I'm very I was very fortunate to be able to you know develop a better mousetrap and create Sessions. And yeah, Sessions has gone from you know, concept trying to partner with a couple people that through the second round lottery that the government uh, the government put on, I was fortunate enough to land a few of those folks, and uh, one of them went sour, which is for a whole other story. But he went from concept uh, in December of 2019 was the first store open, and then February was the second. And today, uh, as of the weekend, we're at 21 stores are open, and another another 25 to go this year. So we've opened a store more or less like two stores almost every month, and. In January, as an example, uh, Sessions opened 11 stores in the month of January. Uh, and same with December, we had several stores there. So, so the last 45 days, I've opened like 15 stores. I've opened a store average, an average of every two or three days. So it's been quite the journey. And, and we have been extremely disruptive. I mean, we've taken the learnings from, from my time in Hamilton and use the analogy going from good to great. You know, I've been able to take some of the things that my partner in Hamilton did really well and just fine tune those and, and develop a better value proposition for our customers. And I also think as sessions as a company, guys like me stand for the underdog, right? We're the, we're not the big corporate guys. You know, we're the guys with the heart and soul in this and put a lot of financial uh, money into this. So I think people really buy into that vision that, you know, we care about customers, we care about the industry and we're not just some, some big wigs and, and, and corporations, right? So 50 stores you might have opened by the end of the year. Is that, is, am I hearing that correctly? My goal, again, back to my setting myself big goals, my goal this year is to open 50 stores. And I'm, I'm on track right now at 44 uh, in terms of in the process. Amazing. So I've got six more to go. And I, I honestly think we'll probably hit closer to 60 at my rate. So yeah, but that was my goal. I set that goal last year, some time ago too. So again, thinking big, setting goals, that was my goal. And I look at that every single day at my, at my desk. I get my, my goals for the year, my upcoming year. That was one of the goals I put on my board, right? So if we look at translating skills from industry to industry and and some people say you know I want to pivot I know it's an overused word to another industry you know you are a certified health professional in in cannabis and healthcare but but there's a lot of differences you're in the retail space etc do you have any advice for anyone that's looking to like transfer into another industry or just do something completely different with their life and career yeah and I would look to a guy like me and if you want to draw any inspiration anybody listening you know, I went from a completely healthcare-oriented industry to retail and, and entrepreneurship and cannabis, which is a brand new industry. And, and while there is some cross-functional skills I've been able to leverage, it's a brand new industry. I'm starting from ground zero, literally. So I'd say my advice to, to people listening would be, you know, just be agile, you know, have the grit, you know, have the confidence and, and, and network, right? I think one reason why I've been so successful in cannabis, I've been able to connect a lot of the dots and I've been able to you know, network with many people in the industry and, and develop a really good network and get a name for myself. And the other thing I'd say that I, I find that's been really impactful for me is the notion that you have to start somewhere, but just start, like just start. And when I started sessions, we didn't have any stores and I just started it and I had a game plan. And, and you know, I use the analogy of rolling a snowball down the hill. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. But if you don't start rolling it, you're not going to make the momentum you need to make. So just starting, starting somewhere and, 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 you know, being agile and course correcting as you need to along the way, but, you know, take risks and, and start and let the snowball roll and jump in, right? 
That's great advice. And it is about just starting. I remember when I started doing this podcasting experiment, I, I talked about it for two years. And then I was finally like, I'm just going to try it, just see how it goes. And once you get into it, you're like, oh, I can learn all of this stuff. It's not that hard. And you know, you, you just have to, again, like have grit and have some, you know, spend some hours learning. Yeah. I would say that like anybody's capable of anything, right? Like I never see myself different than any other person I'm interacting. I think everybody's at different kind of levels in terms of where they're at, their skills and their career and, and personally. But but yeah, I think just jumping in and starting and, and go back to the analogy I talked about earlier, the good old uh, saying, which is, you know, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. So do what you need to do, get it started, and then maybe you get a couple of lucky breaks along the way, right? And I think most successful people do have a lot of luck that that's created along the way, right? So if anyone's interested in like sessions or or you, you know, where should people follow along or, or where do you kind of post comments and, and different things about store openings? Yeah, well, I'm I'm quite active on LinkedIn, so you can always add me on that. Uh, I think it's just like Fry Stephen is my is my 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 handle for that. But uh, yeah, website is a really good place. We're posting often that we've got a we've got a kind of a, a membership subscription program. You can you can add for free. You just join our mailing list, and we're providing lots of updates in terms of what we're up to. And we're up to a lot, as you can imagine. We're always we're always moving and shaking and making big moves. So it's fun, and we we do a monthly newsletter to all our customers that, that subscribe to that. So it's just www.sessions.ca. So it's easy enough to remember. It's awesome. I'll, I'll throw it in uh, the description. So I got a few more <laughs> questions I want to run by you. You've got this tremendous grit. Like I think even when we're off here, you're going to be working, you know, well into the evening. Oh yeah. <laughs> what's your, what's your advice for people like? You could easily just say after this, I'm just going to grab another beer and go watch Netflix and go to bed and get a good sleep. Like, how do you do that? Are you just a guy that doesn't need a ton of sleep? I, I do like sleep. Don't get me wrong. I think everybody likes sleep. But, you know, what I've realized along the way is you can you can function a lot with six, seven, eight hours sleep at most. So there's a lot of time in the day. And I, you know, I think a lot of people just make excuses, right? I think that's a problem. I heard a saying not too long ago. It's like, if you, it's somebody that wants to get in shape, for example, I mean, if you can walk to the fridge and you can, you can, you can exercise, right? Like it's the same kind of analogy. So I think it was just kind of getting rid of the excuses and, you know, you still have to prioritize your time. You don't want to burn yourself out, but things have to get done. You set your goals for the day that need to get done, those top three or four things, and you have to see them through, right? So if it means, you know, working a bit into the wee hours and so be. And I find with having a young family that the kids are usually down by 7 30, 8 o'clock. So, I have some time after that to do do my second wind, right? So I'm at work all during the day, obviously, and then my second shift is at night, right? And that's just that's just something I balance in in my life between family and work, and I think it's a healthy balance and something that I encourage everybody to do. There's a lot of hours in the day, so there's a lot you can accomplish. But if you sit around watching Netflix all day, you're not going to go anywhere, right? It just is what it is. Yeah, that's a great way to look at it, and I, I agree with you. I think we all. You know, I'm even guilty. We make excuses. It's easy to make excuses because it's comfortable and you just do something that's comfortable. Yeah, it, it is. It really much is. And I mean, I make excuses too sometimes and I, I fall off the wagon every now and then, but I, you know, get picking my feet back up and get going again. And through this cannabis experience, the last couple of years, I have my, my weight has fluctuated like up and down like 40 pounds, like quite, quite significantly. Uh, wow. Back to my, my, my normal healthy weight, I've lost like 25 pounds in the last few months, but you know, it, it just things can go off the rails a bit, but you kind of, again, have to course correct and, and readjust and get back on the wagon, right? So it's, there's always time and place to do that. Steve, what's your thoughts for anyone listening to this who uh, still thinks, you know, cannabis shouldn't be be legal? You know, why are you into this business? Yeah, a funny story. My my, my last job, I remember HR department calling me, calling me aside one day when I uh, 
was forced to board this opportunity and telling me I had a moral obligation not to uh, not to pursue this op- opportunity. Which, you know, I, what I tell people is this is a, a this is a legal business. It's regulated. I think there's still a, a significant black or gray market, whatever you want to call it, out there. And I think being a trailblazer in legal cannabis is a really good thing. And I think it's it's a socially responsible thing to do. I mean, it, it, we have lots of safeguards in place for children. There's lots of safeguards in place for marketing and inducement, things of nature. So I think cannabis is a, is a wonderful, a wonderful drug or wonderful plant that has lots of benefits. And I'm personally a consumer and I, and I find it very helpful for a guy like me that needs to wind down in the night. You know, I might hit my vape pen or hit a joint or something and I, and I feel good and it helps me kind of think. And I also find it helps me open up other ways of thinking. It takes off some of those kind of intrinsic filters or lenses I have in my brain. I'm able to, you know, see other other angles I wouldn't normally be able to see. So I think it's like any other business, man. Like it, it, it's a regulated, it's, it's just another business. It, it's a consumer packaged good industry. It just happens to be in a really sexy and cool industry that uh, we can make a lot of good out of, right? So I hope people can kind of drink the cannabis Kool-Aid and, and hopefully along the way start to destigmatize this thing because uh, we still get a lot of challenges from landlords and, and uh, cities and, and, and communities alike all across the province. And then the the last one I want to hit you with is like, what's the impact you want to make in 2021, say beside the 50 stores? Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, we'll continue to grow. I, I, I want to be and continue to be because I am today the largest cannabis uh, network in the province. So that will continue to be our goal. And we're competing against some pretty uh, formidable employer, uh, competitors, right? We're talking multi, some multi-billion, some hundreds of millions I'm competing against and, and, and still still trailblazing and still disrupting. So we've come a long way and we continue to do that. Yeah, I want to make a good contribution to staff. I, to me, I'm only successful as the people that I work with and, and I, I lead and care for. So, you know, I have a duty to my to my people. I have a duty to this industry being so new to really be a trailblazer. You know, Canada was the first uh, country in the G7 to, or maybe the G25 to, to legalize across the country, right? So, you know, I think a lot of people have eyes on cannabis and I want to be part of that story that other other countries look to legalize and be part of that framework, right? So it's a cool thing that really makes history and really leave a dent on on an industry that's just so damn new, right? So that's the plan, plan on that front, and we'll continue to pursue that vision and that mission as we go, right? Yeah, that's great. And I, I know you'll be there. I know you'll be looked back at one of those people that started this whole cannabis retail movement within within Ontario, within Canada. And you know, th- thanks, Steve. Thanks for doing this uh, today always awesome to catch up with you i know we're going to have some brock goodman people i'm going to get this out to and uh you know i learned a lot from today whether it's making sure to set my set my goals high i think i need to set them set them higher as well you know and and having that grit and persistence and you know i'm a, I'm a huge proponent of networking as well and i think anyone listening to this who's early in their careers or university the value of networking i think steve steve said it is just don't overlook that and look, the other thing I'd say too, just in past knowledge in terms of growing your career, I, I forgot to mention is, you know, look for mentors within the companies that you work for. It doesn't have to be a leader. It could be somebody else that's really good at their job, right? But look for those mentors and, you know, really lean into people that can teach you new skills and teach you new things that you may not know. I mean, I've been so fortunate to have lots of great mentors along along my career, including a lot from my past company that I'm still friends with and still mentor today or still be mentored from today. So look for those people and a lot of people will mentor you and, and hopefully if they take a liking to you, they can really follow you along your, your journey and teach you a lot, right? So another big skill to really lean into. 
And on that point, Steve, if you think back to shared services or Wes, you mentioned that you had mentors early on or people more senior. People are like, well, how, how do you do that? You can't just ask someone, will you be my mentor? Like, how did, just quickly, how did you do that? Yeah, I, I think largely talking just mutual business interest and, 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 and asking if you can just have some informal meetings or over lunch. You know, I used to buy people lunch. That was my way of giving back. So I'd say book a lunch. Lunch is on me. Can I pick your brain for 30 minutes or 45 minutes? Or if it don't have that much time, even 15, 20 minutes, I'd always come prepared with questions. And, and at one point, I went as far to the CEO and, and, and she helped me and she mentored me as well. And I had a regular kind of touch point once a month with her. And I, I was really well prepared to make sure that I spent the time to zero in on my challenges and what I wanted to learn and pick her brain about. So I really encourage people to have mentored. In fact, one of my co-op experiences at Brock, at John Deere, the lady there, my supervisor at the time, is still a mentor for me today. I still really? be there for lunch every now and then, and and uh, I still pick her brain about things. And you know, she came to my wedding and everything. So it's it's neat to have those people that that follow you along your career that are just smarter and have more experience than you. And you can kind of pick their knowledge, and hopefully, one hopefully at some point they end up reporting to you, right? So that's the goal. So that's awesome. Well, <laughs> thanks for doing this, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, good seeing you, bud. Catch you in a bit. There you have it. Thanks for checking out. It's not a straight line. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, follow on Spotify, and if you can, leave me a review, provide me some feedback, and I wish you all the best as you find your way in your career and life.